Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Lios enchim anyevu. Greetings, everyone. May the Creator bless you all, and welcome to my podcast, the Good Do E Medicine Podcast. I'll be your host, Pete Rodriguez. All my native people stand We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming in today. Food Deserts in Native Communities. Um, we have Red Dawn. Honored to have her here today, Senator. And AC. And this session is being recorded. It is being recorded. So right now, the hand raising is off. So we're just going to talk a little bit, maybe introduce ourselves first. And a uh, couple of things. Mainly what we want... I want to see, I want to hear what Red Dawn wants, I guess, to get out of this talk or this room. And I'll, I guess that's a good start. Um, We can do that. Let me pull up my notes. And um, a little bit of what I'm doing and where I'm from and what I want to see out of this discussion. For me personally, uh, my name is Pete Leos Enchemanyavu Kechelea. Uh, my name's Pete Rodriguez. I come from the, um, I'm here in Tucson, Arizona. I'm with the Pascua Yaqui tribe. I work there. Actually, I live between two reservations. I'm very lucky. I live one mile east is the Tohono O'odham Reservation, and one mile west is the Yaqui Reservation. So I'm right in the middle. And um, food deserts, um, it's really important to me because I've been working with the uh, Yaki Tribe and the Senior Center and the Elder Garden, and I've started their garden 20 years ago, and my main focus is, well, it feeds the Elder Center. There's about 40 to 50 elders, and we feed them with uh, fresh produce and vegetables there every year for the past 20 years or so, and I really focus on growing traditional foods, not only from our tribe, the Ueme, the Yaki Tribe, but also other tribes as well. So this year, for instance, I'm growing uh, Yoeme purple beans. I'm growing white taromara sunflowers. Um, I'm going to be planting different squashes and also medicinal herbs. So, And we also have a 40-acre ranch, but that one's barely starting. But it's a little, you know, little part I'm doing. And oftentimes we have a lot of fresh produce left over and we give it to the rest of the community members. So we're doing our little part here. We have a small reservation, and um, we're doing our small little part here. And I think uh, there's a gardening, I guess, movement, so to speak, in Indian country. I've talked. To, I had a podcast yesterday. We had a chef on there, and he shared some of the similar passions and thoughts I have. But for me, I really want to see community gardens in more um, Indian communities, reservations. Um, you know, traditional foods come back, even backyard gardens, aquaponics, aeroponics, and things like that. That's what I want to see and contribute and hopefully bring more of that to, um, you know, reservations and native communities and even co-op farms. So that's what I would like to see. And from, I want to, I just want to network and maybe contact with other people that are like-minded like me and, you know, native communities, Indian country, 
So that's what I want to hopefully connect with today in this talk. But thank you. I'm Pete, and I'm done speaking. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for organizing this room. I know that um, it felt like it, this kind of really grew organically out of a conversation that right. we had um, last week. So for everybody that doesn't know me, my name is Red Dawn Foster. I am state senator from South Dakota. I'm Ogallala Lakota, born for Kia'ani. So I'm Navajo and, and Ogallala. Um, I live on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which is the size of Connecticut, but we really only have one grocery store. And um, although it's improved over the years with offering um, fresh fruits and um, produce, fresh fruits and vegetables, it's really just aisles and aisles of processed food. And just when I moved back, um, when I moved back home, it really was this huge um, discrepancy of what was available. And just even my diet alone, I had moved back and I was, I had started teaching and doing a business program at one of the high schools. And so even their, their school lunches of attempting to offer maybe a healthier choice wasn't really a healthier choice. It was just like, again, processed food and even though they had a salad bar um, most of the kids would drown their salads with ranch dressing and so um, just seeing that huge change from when I went to school there and the diets um, that they you know the foods that they had access to I remember as a student at that school we couldn't wait to have lunch because we, we had grandmas and they're cooking for us and it was all like home-cooked food from scratch and it was so yummy that that was um it was a treat and then you know coming back and seeing just that transition to where you, you not only had like the food wasn't real food made with love but you had this processed food that it um <clears throat> it lacked the love the taste the nutrients everything else that um was you know we took maybe for granted at that time and then just seeing the transition across the reservation of we, at the time when I lived here as a youth, we only had that same grocery store, but a lot of people had their own gardens and hunted. And so our diets weren't completely dependent on the grocery stores and what was available there. So I've seen a lot of shift within the past. Um, this I moved back in 20, 2012. And so I've seen a big shift that um, there's community like community development corporations that have really started um, putting a push on community gardens, um, their food systems of doing research to expand what can we do to become food sovereign and really address this food apartheid that's happening because about 98% of our health care, 98% of our health care are food-related lifestyle um, diseases that were affected by like heart disease. There's an epidemic of um, adults mm -hmm. in the age like 40 to 50 years old getting their gallbladder removed. And it's kind of like no one's aware of it, but all of a sudden people are talking like, oh yeah, I got my removed. Oh, I got my removed. And then you find out like within a small group of friends, 80% of them have had their gallbladders removed. And it's, again, that's diet-based um, illnesses because of just the food we have access to. So I thought it would be really great 
um, to kind of expand of the discussion that we had last week and having a lot of people come and say what they were doing in their communities on their reservations of how they were expanding, you know, not just community gardens, but also food co-ops and how we can move back to a traditional diet and deal with maybe just even the nutrients of the food that we're, we're getting now and, and looking at, um, you know, maybe using some of this information to inform legislation that will be coming forward. One of the things that South Dakota has discussed um, repeatedly, which I would also like to address during this conversation, the pros and cons of changing the way EBT or food stamps are structured and what is what they pay for. And looking at, um, you know, a lot of, when we looked at some numbers, there was a high amount of um, EBTs that were going towards like junk food, um, sugary sodas, energy drinks, and then processed foods, in which all of those end up creating um, not, so essentially we're, we're subsidizing junk food companies that are creating diet-based illnesses in our people, and then moved down the line, we're paying for it through our healthcare system because um, these are leading to just you know, diabetes, um, just hypertension, everything that you can think of that um, comes along with a poor diet. And so I'm really grateful to be here, especially, you know, with, with Pete and um, AC and just find out everything I can. So thank you. Oh, this is Red Dot and I'm done sleeping. Hello, everybody. This is AC Agoyo. I'm calling in from Washington, D.C., which is on the homelands of the Piscataway people. Originally, I'm from New Mexico. I'm a Pueblo person. Uh, I grew up at Oquehuingue, which is in northern New Mexico. That's my father's tribe. I'm also from Cochiti Pueblo and Kiwa, which are my mother's tribes. And I would want to send a special shout out to my mom, who's in the room, Rachel. She's listening along. She lives back home at Oquehuingue. So I'm glad that she's able to connect on Clubhouse and listen to these types of conversations. And I really want to pay tribute to my mom because uh, growing up at Okawinga, she made sure we ate healthy all the time. You know, she didn't allow us to have, quote, junk food. You know, we could we could have soda, but maybe only during our feast days, our Pueblo feast days. And, you know, her 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 influence and her her guidance and and that helped really make myself and my siblings into healthy people, you know, and I think this idea and this topic is timely because there are ways in which we've kind of diverged from that. Am I, and I, growing up, not only did we farm, you know, my family farmed, my mother, you know, made sure we ate healthy, but we also had commodities, you know, commodities aren't always considered the best food, but for some people that might be their only option, you know, the nearest grocery store they might not be able to get there or if they do go there maybe they don't like how they're treated there so you know the options for for going out and getting food getting food on your own might be limited so i think there are multiple ways that we can discuss food sovereignty in any country you know it has to i think has to start from home and there are multiple ways that we can improve programs that serve us you know right right now you know, the food distribution program on Indian reservations i think it's improved you know, we're able to have bison in, in, in food now. We're able to have traditional foods, where, whereas before that wasn't the case. So I'm really here to, 
you know, listen and learn. I'm by no means am I a food sovereignty expert, but I'm happy that uh, Pete and Senator Foster were able to, to create this conversation so that we can hear from other people in Indian country and other people, you know, who live in urban areas to find out the ways where, you know, we can improve these situations. And uh, again, this is AC Agoya and I'm done talking. Thank you, AC. And Waylon, we have Waylon here on the stage. Welcome, Waylon. Waylon, I was thinking of your group, Waylons, but I'm um, sorry. That was a good group room. But um, also, this is being recorded, um, Waylon, just FYI, this uh, session. So, And we'll open up the um, hand raising as soon as we're done with introductions. And Waylon, please, if you could share a little bit about yourself and... Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you. My name is Waylon Pretenzigal. I'm an enrolled member of the three affiliated tribes of North Dakota. I'm currently working on a couple of different projects um, uh, regarding uh, hemp, basically, but uh, it does tie into some of the food sovereignty movements and initiatives. And so it's very relevant to the conversation and I'm very, very um, uh, honored to, to be joining the stage. With, with you all, uh, I, I definitely um, am looking forward to, to more people joining the conversation who are working in their, their communities um, uh, for, this, for this specific purpose. So most definitely. Thank you. Thank you, Waylon. And really quick, I just want to reset the room. This is a food desert to native communities. We're talking about solutions, mainly solutions um, to bring and uh, also chit chat a little bit about what's going on in your tribe and your community, what you're doing to uh, fight the, I guess, the access to um, fresh food and vegetables and uh, also um, how to um, combat the high rate of of diabetes, as Red Dawn, um, Ms. Foster was saying, uh, obesity, you know, lack of access to food here in the, um, the, uh, Tohono Reservation, just, um, south of me, there's only one store within like almost 50 miles or more. And that's it. There is no other store. And, um, it takes almost an hour drive or more round trip just to come into town. And once you get into town, all there is is fast foods, McDonald's, Wendy's, Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's all there is. There's no, you know, access to fresh fruits and uh, vegetables. But yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and open up the um, the um, the room, the stage. Just be advised that this session is being recorded. And with that said, you are um, when you do come on stage, you are. Um, accepting that, that it is being recorded and you will be recorded. I do want to hear, hear from a couple people. Nicole, I'm going to invite you to the stage to invite to speak. We spoke about a, uh, something really interesting. I would like, uh, Red Dawn to listen to, uh, uh, some of the things you had to say earlier. We spoke in this week about some farmers markets, mobile markets and things like that. So, it's hand raising is open. So if you want to come up to the stage, please, and share some of your stories or comment or things you would like to share with us, you are welcome.
Okay, thank you for coming on the stage. And don't forget to mute your mic um, when you do come on stage. And um, we'll just go in order. So first, um, Nicole, if you could just do a quick brief intro, your name and where you're from and what would you like to share? I'm really interested in a couple of things you have to share with us. Bujou, relatives, um, Nakomas Nakwaki Kwen Indijinakas, Muskajibi Nindunjaba, Makwanda Dane. My name is Nicole, uh, Anishinaabe from Bad River, which is on the south shore of Lake Superior. It's a place called Muskajibin. It's a place where food grows on water. Uh, I'm very, um, wild rice is a, is a important part of my community's culture my community's economy. Um, so that's where I come from right now. I reside in Madison, which is uh, the ancestral ha- land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. Um, and I just wanted to chime in a little bit about the, the conversation that we just had um, the other day, which was about native food markets. You could hold on just one second. Sure. We'll uh, go ahead and uh, also we have a couple more people up on the stage. Um, and just be advised, again, this session is being recorded. So um, if you come on stage, you are consenting to be recorded. Thank you. Are you back with us, Nicole? No, I'm actually going to pass the mic for a second. Okay. Um, if I could, and then I'll, I'll come back in. No worries. We'll come back to you. Megan, please, if you could uh, just do a quick intro and let us know a little bit about you and where you're from. Hi, I'm Megan Baldy. I'm from the Hoopa Valley Tribe in Hoopa, California. Um, I am the district coordinator for the Climate Trinity Resource Conservation District. I also sit on the Intertribal Agriculture Council Executive Board of the Pacific Region representative and as well as the Western Region Tribal Advisory Committee for NRCS. Um, I work in my community primarily doing food sovereignty initiatives. Um, We have about 144,000 acres in our reservation and about 3,200 people living in in Hoopa. We do only have one store. At one point, our store was shut down um, we just got it back two years ago, but it was shut down for about three years due to a um, huge rat infestation. Um, the store was not managed by the tribe, but it was um, managed by a, a corporation. And um, they uh, basically had a huge rat infestation, and we don't know for how long or for what period of time that they were feeding us food that was contaminated but it was it was pretty bad and a lot of the reason why they got away with it was because of the fact that they were on a federal Indian reservation and they paid um, their um, inspection fee to the county and the county did not have jurisdiction so they were able to continue to do it and we don't know for how many years but we were a food desert at one time um, right now we have one store one mini mart we have we lack a lot of infrastructure especially with uh, small businesses so trying to get um, people into ag has been a little difficult and trying at times but it's definitely so worth it um, when I first started working with the program um, we I was actually tossed into the community garden by the previous garden manager and at that time honestly I didn't know how to grow anything um, my husband was the farmer at home 
and I would just go in the garden and, and take a salt shaker was about it. And so, um, you know, I got thrown into that position and, and it was really hard at first to get it going and, and understand how to even get a community garden up and, and running. The great thing was the previous um, lady that ran the community garden, she got a lot of the infrastructure set, like the um, fencing, the road, the um, we had like uh, stools and uh, benches in there. And so she got a lot of that in place. And so when I came in, it was just basically how to get the garden going and what the vision of the, the garden was going to be. Um, at first, um, I talked to a few farmers and I was like, what can I get going? Because I didn't want to kill a whole garden in the beginning. And one of my farmer friends, he told me to grow pumpkins. They're so resilient. So I was like, okay, I can grow pumpkins with kindergartners. Um, that's not a problem. So I got the kids in, involved. We grew pumpkins from seed and we had this pretty nice garden. At the time, um, next to the garden was a behavioral school. And so we live on a reservation um, in our school district's 90% Native American. So these kids were over in this behavioral school for many reasons, some of them acting out, some of them not able to, you know, function with, uh, within, you know, basically segregated, which was really sad, but they actually would come over to the garden when they would get frustrated and just kind of blow off some steam. Well, the pumpkin patch was doing so well, so when they came over, um, when I wasn't there, they actually destroyed all the pumpkins. And I was like, oh man, and I knew it was them. So I went over to them and um, kind of just like said, how could they do that to the baby's pumpkins? And they all hung their head. They were all pretty shamed out. And I know all of the kids and their families and stuff. So it's one great thing about being um, part of this community. Well, I went back to the garden and I was just like, oh, um, what, what do I do? I can lock the gate, but that's not gonna keep them out. They'll scale the fence. I could, um, call the cops but they're used to that you know they that they're there they've dealt with that before or i could get them involved so i got the kids involved in the garden they actually built garden boxes and we started growing uh food there and i taught them how to eat food that they grew from there so it was a really good project um and you know what what was really beneficial about it is the kids had a place to go that call their own when they were having issues in the classroom and they also were able to eat the food that they were growing from their own hands. So that's a little bit about the community garden background. And since then we, we do so many new things. This pandemic has put a damper on that, um, which is unfortunate, but also through our program, um, not only do we want to uh, teach people that these foods are nutritious, but how to use them. So, you know, we do cooking classes, with the season and i i like to bring in indigenous foods with that so like like one of the favorite dishes to make is like a kale stir uh kale and salmon stir fry and just kind of getting kids used to like having different foods introduced um with their regular foods or familiar foods is one good thing and they really loved it um we do the cooking classes um all throughout the community with the senior center at the school um at the diabetes center and then I'm also a master food preserver, and so I teach people how to can, ferment, um, freeze, and dry foods. Um, so there's a lot of things that uh, the community really enjoys that, and I teach kids, you know, from eight all the way up to our seniors. 
And our program has been really successful in writing grants that actually also are able to purchase a lot of the canners, jars, and canning equipment. And so we not only believe in like, you know, teaching, but we believe that empowerment comes with tools. So we like to teach people how to do the canning and then give them the tools to do that. And it's not just, you know, adults and community members, it's our elders and our children that we're also working alongside. Um, so it might talk, it might going way too long. Hi, Megan. Um, we have other people on the stage, but yes, if you could sum it up in the next like 20, 30 seconds, that way they can, they're allowed to speak. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, just, I do a lot of just outreach to our community and I feel like that's the most successful thing. And like, you know, if you're really passionate and you can, you know, see the, see the change that you want to see in your community, I think that just strapping on your boots and getting on the ground is, is the best thing to do. Thank you. That's Megan. I'm done talking. Thank you so much, Megan. That's a lot of information. Very valuable. I'm pretty sure Red Dawn or anyone here listening could connect with you. I definitely love what you're doing and I'm definitely going to follow you and connect with you. Do you have any questions, um, Red Dawn or AC of any of our speakers so far? We'll get back to Nicole right now in a little bit. Yeah, Megan, no, thank you for that story. And um, I, I started following you the last time I heard you speak. I would love to have a much longer conversation and find out maybe what funding sources that you guys have been able to tap into as well. But um, I'll, con I'll connect with you offline. Okay, sounds good. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Megan, for sharing. So after the store had that big issue, did people just decide that, this is a tribal sovereignty issue and we need to take control is that it without that happening you know obviously it's a bad incident with but without that happening do you think that this the tribe would have moved in the direction anyway um i think that the tribe at that time realized that we were the ones that had to shut it down and then that we were the ones in control of that um it was an eye opener for sure, but um, now I believe that the tribe is, you know, very attentive towards that fact, and you know, even now they they are working very hard to, you know, keep rats out by clearing like a lot of brush around um, the store and where it's at. So yeah, the tribe actually definitely took control of that. But if it wasn't for the tribe, the county would allow them to continue to operate if the tribe said it was okay. Great, thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. Nicole, are you back with us, Nicole? Uh, yeah, I'm here. So um, just quickly, I wanted to just talk a little bit about, Pete, I mentioned the other day um, about the Native Food Network, um, and that's a market connection for Native food products. And it was an initiative going on here in Wisconsin, um, friend of mine here in the community puts that up, puts that, he coordinates that. And, um, one of the things that he incorporates into this organization is, uh, trade routes where he, um, has mapped, mapped a route to, um, distribute and, and buy and, and trade native foods, um, and so I encourage I encourage people to look that up because I think that that's a I, 
I think it sets a good example for, um, you know, ways in which that we can work together as communities to do that. So I just wanted to add that piece to this morning's discussion. And um, this is Nicole, and I'm done speaking. Perfect. Thank you, Nicole. Next, we have Teresa. And also, just a quick reminder, we are talking about food deserts and native communities, and this session is being recorded. So if you do come on stage to speak, it's a consent that you are and will be recorded. Thank you. And Teresa, we have Teresa next, please. If you could just talk a little bit about your your name, uh, where you're from, and a little bit what you're doing in your community uh, to fight these uh, native uh, the food deserts. And um, just keep it under a couple, three minutes or so, if you don't mind. Thank you. Good morning. I'm from the, I'm an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. I currently reside in the, what is known as the Seminole, uh, lands, uh, and this today is known as Florida. Um, as you know, I'm in trying to learn and listen about everything, and, um, you all have been very, very good teachers. I'm not currently residing, as I said, in my nation, but I go home and visit often. And when I do, I often go eat with my relatives at our, um, I guess for lack of a better word, our cafeteria. Um, and Pete, I hear that, I hear all, a number of you talk about your um, gardens. Um, we don't really have that. And when we go to eat at my cafeteria, we're given processed foods. We get in line and, and what we are given is basically what I would call government subsidies. And it's all comes from cans and stuff. And I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't know if there's a question. There is a question in here. I'm not really quite sure how to go about it. And I guess my question is, how do you go about going to the tribe and saying, why are we doing this? How do we get a garden for our tribe? I mean, it's, it's Oklahoma. We're, we're, we're Cherokees. We're farmers. Why aren't we, why aren't we farming? Um, why aren't we providing our people who are dying of diabetes and cancer? Why aren't we doing the things that we need to be doing? Right. Yeah. No, no, Teresa, it's okay. It's, I think it's a, it's um, definitely a, I, I, I wanted to just, step in here for a minute because I know it's an emotional uh, conversation when it comes to food and uh, you know it, it can be it can ra- it can range from happiness to to this and uh, in my experience um, my tribe uh, when I started my community garden back in holy smokes the middle 2000s um, the early aughts I guess you can say um, my tribe, council did not help um i had to go to a it was a a tribal corporation actually that had the thought of creating a non-profit that was going to be able to start addressing this issue 
unfortunately, I was a little bit ahead of my time. And it was in the early aughts that this happened. And unfortunately, it, it fell short. My efforts fell short. Um, so Megan, the pumpkin patch, uh, <laughs> you know, I understand, um, uh, uh, I understand how, what it, what it is to face that adversity. And so, you know, I, I just, I, I don't want to speak for other tribal governments, but I just want to speak to my experience of what I've faced. And so that's, you know, that, I think that's, that's, that's one of the things that we want to also move into is discussing that, you know, um, our experience with living in the food desert. And um, so I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt you, Teresa. I just, I just know the emotional. No, thank you. And that's why I listen to you all and listen to your stories and try to maybe learn something to how you were able to introduce those things. Um, because I do, we do run up against a lot in our current political climate at the moment with our current, well, I'll just say that and leave it at that. And I'm done speaking. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Teresa. Yeah, it's, it's really powerful. And um, does any of our moderators want to follow up with Teresa? Yeah, for sure, Teresa. Um, Megan, again, um, you know, the, the program that I work for is a tribal nonprofit but we, we are totally autonomous from the tribal government. And that autonomy allows us to go after funding that, you know, the council doesn't really have, you know, too much to weigh into, but also because they're so changing all the time, we're actually on the ground for a lot more years than they are in seated. And so um, I think that was a great step. And we actually did it in the beginning through our diabetes center. So maybe having a conversation if you guys have a diabetes center or your healthcare center uh, to see if they might be able to help? Well, I mean, I don't know if you know, that's where our hospital's soul, it's a monolith. It's W.W. Hastings. So it's a corporation unto itself. So that's just a huge monolith it's it's a big corporation unto itself. So trying to go there is is even worse than trying to go to the tribe. Well, Teresa, this is AC. I, I know that the Cherokee Nation has introduced bison. Is that run by, do you know which department that's run by? Do you think maybe they might be open to this discussion? Maybe. That might be a better a better place to start. Just going to the hospital, no. But going, uh, yeah. Teresa, this is Waylon speaking. I um, actually, uh, Native Health Matters is run by a fellow by the name of Timothy Hausberg from the Cherokee Nation, and um, they're doing some pretty interesting things with him. And I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm wondering if they're the same people who are feeding the hemp to the or feeding the using that for, for the Buffalo. Um, so Timothy Hausberg, um, but we can, we can connect offline. So. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks, Waylon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Teresa. And, uh, I'm very happy we, we started recording this. There's a lot of good information and, um, contacts and, um, please connect. And also I'll re, like I said, I'm recording this. So if you're on stage, you are doing our consent to being recorded. 
And next, Mr. Damon, please introduce yourself and uh, where you're from and a little bit about what you're doing or your nation, food, deserts, and native communities. How calling in from the southern tip of southeast Alaska, Hiktahundlai, and I've uh, traveled around you know, Indian country for roughly 10 years doing camps and facilitating um, workshops and speaking. And when I'd go into communities, I was always going in from like a, a informational, like I didn't go in and say, hey, I'm the master of this, or I have the knowledge. I would go in and I would just listen and ask about the language and ask about this food sovereignty. And I try and learn as much as possible. So Megan, I've been down to your territory. Territory. Um, I'm really good friends with Kiyoki and Jude Marshall, and I came to your uh, your garden, your community garden, and, and I literally tell everyone about it. It's such an exciting space to be able to see your community have an opportunity and have access to produce and vegetables and be able to do it in a sustainable way. So. Um, I'm always looking to your nation down there and the work that you're doing. So how for that, because I'm seeing how it's kind of trickling down to your youth and you're being very intentional. And I think that's what I'm curious about with other nations is how they're being intentional about getting this across to our young people that the reason that we do have diabetes, the reason that we do have these poor health issues is because of colonialism and all of these sugar and processed foods that were introduced to us and we're still you know, putting these things into our body. And I'll give you a quick story is here in Hiktahundlai, Heidelberg, we're a village of 300 people. The nearest grocery store is an hour. We have a little grocery store in our community that's the size of a small gas station. So we don't have fresh things here consistently. Right now we're um, in the process. We just got a bunch of funding of launching a new grocery store that will have a greenhouse in it. And at the school, we have a ton of funding too. So we're working on a greenhouse there as well. And I got to the school about a month ago I'm back home in my town. I'm contracting with the school because they have a ton of funding in different boxes, but they don't have the manpower in a sense. They don't have uh, the push to really get things launched. And I guess that forward thinking, we have a great principal and superintendent. One's our principal's Native Hawaiian. Our superintendent is Shimshia, and they're both indigenous. So they have a good perspective. And um, our Native Hawaiian superintendent, he's done great work in other districts as far as taking back sovereignty in an educational standpoint. And when I got into school a month ago, they were having candy in the bowls and giving out candy to students. So I really quickly checked that and said, we need to be giving out fruit and vegetables and um, healthy, healthy snacks for the kids when they're coming to school because this all correlates with their mental health. The things that we're allowing our children to put in their bodies, it all correlates, correlates with their mental health. And I was one of those kids who was, you know, overweight and I drank multiple pops a day because I was trying to cope with the trauma. And I learned that eating was one of my coping mechanisms. So I think if we're able to put language to our young people and say, hey, like this is a direct correlation with your our trauma and then being able to give them language behind their trauma, which is what I'm doing right now. Um, you're able to kind of pull them along because if you say, hey, just eat good, eat better. They don't understand the like. They don't understand what it does to their bodies. They don't understand what it does to their brain. So that's what I'm trying to do: is take it from the whole entire well-being of our young people, talking about trauma, talking about mental health and wellness, and then being able ample being able to direct them to good foods. So that's where it started, and now I'm uh, I'm creating a project in the school now where I'm going to start connecting with uh, seafood processing plants. And my vision is for us to have nothing but our traditional food because we're not as we're not as desert the same, you know, as the Navajo Res and 
some of these uh, nations out there who are very far and you have to drive are we're in a different situation where I could go and out to the front of my community and I could jig for halibut. I could go for shrimp. I could get crab. I just had shrimp and crab last night. I have halibut sitting in my freezer right now. I have deer sitting in my freezer. I have salmon sitting in my freezer. I have all these things that we are very accessible to, but we've gone away from them because of colonialism. So that's what I'm pushing right now is I'm trying to, with our school and the supporters, we're trying to hideize our whole entire educational system from the books we read to the things that we put in our body. Our library is filled with uh, indigenous books. Like we have a whole section right now with nothing but um, women of color for Women's History Month. And our kids are learning about women who have done amazing things in history. So that's the direction we're going in. And it's, I guess you could say it's easier because we're so isolated and we're able to have our kids immersed in their community and culture. Like we have a totem park, we have language in the school, we have an immersion school. So I guess everything that we're doing is all correlating with the mental health push forward. And I think it starts with what we're putting in our body. And that's what I'm trying to do here. How a good institution I'm and for why I'm here is like, I want to share, but I want to like listen to other, what other people are doing because I think it's really important that we have networks and we're all communicating because there's amazing things going on out there. And I feel like we don't do enough communicating to find out what's working for others so that we could try and you know implement those things into our community. So I'm always trying to listen and learn. So I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, Damon. No, exactly. I think this is what the, the beauty that Clubhouse brings is the ability to to create a community and, and share that information. And um, I love what you're doing. And so thank you. Yes, thank you, Damon, for that. Um, very, very. I've been meaning to speak with you. Maybe we can uh, connect also. I, I've heard you in other rooms and um I love what you're doing with the communities, but um, we'll move on. We'll have Brooke next to speak and also people that join the stage and also on the audience below. This session is being recorded. It is being recorded. So if you do come on stage to speak, you do give consent that you will be recorded. Thank you. Oh, hi. Hello. Um, my name is Brooke Rodriguez. I'm a Taino mom living in Matinecock Territory, Palmanock, New York, also long as Long Island. And um, so my experiences with food deserts um, through my community kind of goes from the rural to the urban because we were back in the island when we were um, colonized by Spain we were first, I was going back like 500 something years, but so the first time we came into to contact with like food deserts is through monocropping because they would take our tobacco and our crops and basically destroy biodiversity by creating monocropping. So that was like the first implementation of a start of food deserts. But then when we got colonized by the United States, they changed our agricultural economy into a parts manufacturing economy. So basically the um, food desert increased because we no longer relied on agricultural economy. Um, and then, of course, you always get the reduction of species and stuff like that, food systems. Um, some cattle industries came in and that changed the landscape 
And then uh, the United States also practiced like open eugenics on Boricua people. So there was a campaign to depopulate um, the islands and about two thirds of our population were sterilized. Um, and part of that also, that depopulation was land grabs. So they created relocation programs, but it wasn't called that. It was called something else. And a lot of us wind up going to cities for job skills and stuff like that. And when we found ourselves in cities, particularly a big population in New York, we came into urban food deserts, which urban food deserts are very different. It's not based on like monocropping or the reduction of diversity, but access to whole foods. So what you have in urban centers and cities is essentially industrial food systems basically your processed foods, high preservatives, high salt, high sugar. Um, and Boricua people, one of our number one killers is diabetes. So it's all related to these um, purposely placed food deserts and things like that. And one of the ways that Boricua people, when they came to the urban centers, especially the ones who were from farming uh, communities, like my grandfather, when he came here in the 1940s, Three, I believe he actually came from like a peanut farm um, peanut is actually a traditional food of the islands along with cashews and, and pineapple and such like that um, so a lot of Boricua people cr started creating um, what they called during the urban decay uh, in basically the 70s and 80s and 90s um, community gardens and it was actually an act of resistance because what was happening was that the city wasn't taking care of Boricua communities or um, brown communities. And there was, I kid you not, literally dilapidated, like half falling down buildings. And so Boricua people reclaimed these spaces in places like Loisaida and took back these empty lots and started building community gardens. And what's interesting about the community gardens in New York is that it didn't get any support until white people started doing it. So now you have like a whole bunch of white people now over the last, like I'd say five or 10 years creating community gardens and they basically get all of the visibility. Cause as we know, any place that Indians go, there's always going to be erasure and things like that. So they're never going to admit that the roots of community gardens is directly related to migrant cultures in um, Boricua community and also, uh, believe it or not, Korean. Cause Koreans came here also and created a huge um, urban gardening. But some of the ways that we kind of like take on that thing is a, a group of us, uh, me and my friend Desiree Kane, we created a, a program called First Foods Program, which essentially was supposed to be a native in-person meetup and kind of like a meet and greet and kind of cook. Um, cooking and recipe share but because of COVID we had to take it online and we noticed that it just like kind of exploded I didn't really think that it would get it as big as it is but so we're right now in our second year and what we do is we hire basically traditionalists, aunties, uncles we're, we're very like anti-capitalist so I don't care if you have a degree it's nice if you have one but it's also nice if you don't um, and we just hire people from you know, all over the Americas, indigenous Americas. And we give free weekly classes every um, Wednesday, but we're probably going to be switching that to Thursdays again. And uh, the other thing that we started doing was having the food podcast, which a lot of 
um, the earlier podcast were about land back and access to land and access to land is, is I think the primary way that food deserts are created for indigenous community, the restriction, either whether it's relocating indigenous communities to territories they don't know or forcing monocropping into their territories or for the rural or resonative natives, it's putting them on land and restricting mobility. Um, so through my son's nation, because he's uh, Shichango Lakota, I noticed that the that they're restricted to the reservation territories and then the buffalo patterns that used the migrations that used to happen no longer are happening. And that's directly impacted the range of Team Sila and how far Team Sila can go because the hooves used to basically till the soil. Um, so all of these things create food deserts for um, indigenous people. And Teresa, I, I don't think it's the fault of indigenous people. I think these structures are purposely put to harm us and to restrict our movement and to destroy us. But we are powerful and we are resilient and we will always overcome these things. So just wanted to let you know that, you know, you're going to be able to do things. And if whatever you need my support, I'll definitely help you in that. But thank you. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you. Thank you. You do a lot of good in the communities. And that's what we want to hear about today. And a quick quick reset, we're talking about food deserts in our native communities. And what are some solutions? Um, we have uh, Senator Red Don Foster, AC Agoyo, and my buddy Waylon here as moderators listening to um, a couple of uh, people speak. And also this session is being recorded. Um, so if you come on stage to speak, it is open to come up and speak um, if you want. But just uh, just be aware that it is being recorded and you do consent for it to be recorded when you do come out on stage. And we'll be moving people to the audience. You know, don't feel like, um, you know, we're moving you. But um, we want to give some other people a chance to speak. And we're going on 50 minutes. So we'll see how it goes. We'll keep it going for maybe, <clears throat> excuse me another 30 minutes or so but we do want to give everyone a chance to speak about what's going on in their communities and sarah please welcome to the stage and the mic and you have the mic thank you uh ayuki uh yotoa for uh inviting me up here and i i um, can only talk for just one second but uh so and i'm i reside uh, on coast Miwok land, and it is a very abundant land as far as uh, in all senses of the word. It's, it's there's you know a lot of access to food here, and a lot of access to um, a traditionally gathered foods. So some of the work that I've been doing through the California Indian Museum and Cultural Center has been to sort of help people counteract that food apartheid situation in their communities by relearning how to gather traditional foods and how to process and prepare them and preserve them so um, it can, you know, it's all tied in with food security and sovereignty in that way. And um, I've been doing meal kits with traditional foods and we send them out to the communities and then I do um, Zoom cooking classes with these meal kits to show people even just how to, you know, how to make new foods with, with our traditional foods and 
kind of get them excited about gathering again to help sort of just counteract that lack of access to good and whole foods like Brooke was saying. And, um, yeah, so uh, that that's what I've been working on primarily over the last year. And it's been really, it, it's been really successful, I feel. And I get a lot of feedback from people who have returned to gathering and, you know, are really excited about making new foods in this way. And, and it sort of takes out that equation if they have access to the, you know, to gathering spaces. And one of the struggles is not having free and easy access to these spaces. And um, many of the the gatherers up in like Pomo country will get sighted gathering. And that's been one of the challenges as well. But um, thank you for the space. And uh, my name is Sarah and I'm done speaking. That's all. You know, I always enjoy, uh, enjoy seeing your Instagram posts and all that really good food. So <laughs> Alex, how's it going? I'm Alex Romero Frederick, and I'm actually sitting with my husband here, Wayne Frederick, and um, we live on the Sichango Mokoche. Apple nachos. <laughs> Apple nachos, he says, for breakfast or brunch or whatever. But yeah, for us here in South Dakota, it's not so much a food desert, but a food apartheid because we can leave the res and have access to good food. Um, so we decided, I'm thinking about six, seven years ago, we're ranchers here and um, we were seeing how our cattle were being, when we would sell them at market, they would be taken out and put into large feedlots and nothing was coming back to the community. So for the past seven years, we've been keeping um, and raising these cattle ourselves and we call ourselves res raised and our um, our cattle, they're 100% grass-fed. We don't do antibiotics. We don't do steroids or anything. It's all natural. So my husband here, Wayne, he's uh, the buffalo man on the rosebud. And he was, he did, you know, we would use his knowledge on how to take care of buffalo and translate that into cattle until we can get buffalo. We're working on that. Hopefully next summer we will have buffalo out here. So... Our little, I guess, our little land back for us is taking these tri- tribal lands that weren't previously held by tribal members and taking that back under our management and rehabbing them. So we've rehabbed grasslands. Um, we're working more in farmlands. This year is the first year that Rosebud is going to have um, hemp producing. So my husband is. Uh, applied to be a hemp producer so we have land farmlands that we have taken out of commercial um, farming and we're going to turn those into hemp croplands so and also like community gardens I know I think it was Brooke who was saying how community garden spaces were taken over by the white people and that's kind of what happened here on Rosebud uh, they, they took that away from the community and we, we won't really have an access now to that so we work with other people within our community who are like master gardeners and we're working on a collective there to provide food from the people for the people 
and we use their farmer's market. There's a farmer's market that they have in town in the summertime. And we really try to push um, what we call res raised. You know, it's from here, it's good. And hopefully that will grow more in the future. And we're just always looking to see how we can better impact our community through food. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Alex. And I would love if you could share that apple nachos recipe sometime. <laughs> that sounds really good. Yes, I would love that recipe too. We're going to do a, this is um, <clears throat> the club um, gathering of nations. So if you haven't um, joined, please join. And probably on Res Cafe, I started a new room on Thursdays around i think it's 4 p.m or so we share we discuss uh traditional foods native foods recipes um things like that so we can share uh um, maybe that recipe sometime that would be that would be so good um thank you alex and next on the stage we have josh josh welcome josh My name is Josh Dilba, and I'm from the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Um, and uh seemed like Wayne Frederick uh, misunderstood and thought it was food dessert, so he's giving out apple apple nacho recipes. <laughs> But um, I just wanted to say, like, um, so, and I can only speak from my perspective, you know, and that's my reservation. And, and, um, We talk about food deserts, and they, they, it's real, right? But a lot of it is us, as Indian people, making bad choices. And um, because, you know, like Joe Dirt said, you know, it's not what you like, it's the consumer, right? So our, our grocery stores on the reservation, they're, they're not carrying a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables because that's not what people are by and large buying. When the EBT hits... People are buying hot Cheetos and soda and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, there's all kind of reasons for that. You know, I mean, I think Brooke alluded to some of that in the way that we've been conditioned um, for our food choices. And I remember when I worked on Rosebud, um, there was an organization that was uh, plowing or they were uh, tilling for gardens. Um, they had a program where they're tilling for gardens and they're practically begging for people to to let them come in and till so that you know they could they could uh do the the the, the job that they were uh, applying for grants for and so that the opportunity is there a lot if you want to uh, grow a garden it's there um but also there's a lot of wild foods that grow you know all over our reservations that that people just don't get out and, and take advantage of and so it's a lot of it's a mentality shift and so how do we get people to to think differently about the way that they approach food um and i feel like if we and i don't know the answer to that obviously i don't make the best food choices myself so what could you guys tell me to make better food choices but i think i think that's the main question is how do we get people to approach food in a different way that's that's healthy for them and it's not uh necessarily that we don't know what's good for us and what's bad for us you know we're not ignorant we know that if we if we eat a lot of carbohydrates we're gonna get diabetes and then we get diabetes and then we just continue to drink soda and, and, and eat these high carb foods even though people are telling us that's bad for you 
so I think uh, maybe hopelessness is a part of it. You know what I mean? Like we don't really see the point in, in worrying about our own health because we don't really see what our road forward into the future is, like a good road, you know? So uh, I just wanted to say that and uh, appreciate everybody and the, the knowledge and expertise that we bring into this and, and especially Pete for opening up these spaces. And um, just wanted to say thank you. Hetch it to a This is Josh. Thank you, Josh. Those are really, really good points. Um, um, to just to expand on that, we do grow a lot of um, fruits and vegetables, and um, <clears throat> like the, I think it was last year, we grew some um, um, asparagus, which takes a long time. We grew some um, the uh, other type of, I think it was a type of cauliflower, and it is sometimes difficult for our our community, you know, try this food, you know, and, and they, you know, getting them to try different types of, uh, vegetables. Uh, but that's, I'm just speaking for, for our tribe and our situation. Um, like, um, um, we had difficult, you know, try this, try this. And then we had like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to try something new. Well, like, it's good for you. It's healthy, but, um, but yes, thank you for that, Josh. And does anyone, uh, any of the moderators want to uh, maybe respond to Josh and we'll move on? Yeah, no, thank you, Josh. And I think that that is one the great thing that, about having these conversations is starting that and being able to really learn from each other. Um, Damon Bell was speaking earlier about the work that he's doing with our community and our youth, just kind of addressing um, those very things of what they what their relationship to food is and why it's important and how it's connected to a much bigger um, issue of I guess just just our sovereignty our language and it's it's a comprehensive movement that they're they seem to be bringing forth and I know that um, as you said repetitive exposure normalizes that what's available will become normalized in the food systems that we're exposed to the foods that we're getting in um, the schools, it, it, it creates that pattern. And, you know, then we do take the path of least resistance. So whatever is available, whatever is easiest. I know that when I was in grad school, I didn't always, I tried to look for what was nutritious, but I ended up, or I should say even now, now that you actually know me, I go for what's easiest. Um, and so that's uh, kind of that thing of in certain areas, the healthy, nutritious is also easy, easily available. So then that makes it easy. But when it isn't, you really have to depend on that self-discipline. And one thing that I um, would love to, to kind of just bring aware, we as, I guess, humans actually develop our food tastes while we're in the, our food preferences while we're in the womb. So our food, what we are going to tend to gravitate towards <clears throat> begins before even like our first, first breath cup. You know, comes and so, as women that are um, carrying a child, be aware that what you're consuming, your baby's consuming, and that's going to develop their food preferences going forward. So, um, you know, that, that's it comes with education and outreach. I and food is political. Like if you think about it, we um, we as Lakotas were never beat militarily. It was once they destroyed our, uh, destroyed our food source, our full economy, our buffalo, that's when they were able to subjugate us. There was a war of attrition. So identifying it in that bigger context of 
um, food is political. Um, when I was little, I remember we, I went grocery shopping with my with my dad, and um, he is, you know, I, my dad and my mother met at Wounded Knee seventy you know, three. So that kind of gives you context of just their political awareness um, that they had. And so we went to the grocery store, and of course, I wanted white white rainbow bread because it had kind of that cartoon looking um, image on there. And so I grabbed it and my dad's like, no, like we don't eat white bread. That's processed. There's no nutritious food. And he like completely like went through this very political, I mean, I was probably five years old and went through this political source of how our food is political, that through our diets, they're able to control us and that we, you know, no processed foods, no um, white bread, all these things that were actually intended to destroy us as a people is how he put it. And so that kind of shaped my preference of, okay, what I'm putting into my body, it has to be nutritious, is low, and that food is no longer about nutrition, it's about profit, and how can we combat that? So I think, again, what Damon, Val, and others are doing of reaching to our youth and bringing that awareness and how that their food systems, our traditional food systems, um, are connected to a much bigger thing about sovereignty. So, wonderful question, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Senator Redon. Um, we're going to move on to Robert. Welcome to the stage, Robert. Also, really quick, uh, food deserts and native communities. This session is being recorded, so if you do come on stage to speak, it's a consent that you will be recorded. Thank you. Go ahead, Robert. <clears throat> Hey, Waylon. Thanks for introducing me. I think I'll start out with talking about my intermittent connection to various uh, indigenous or American Indian communities, ranging from where I'm enrolled at in uh, Lake Traverse, Sisaitawan, Wakpetawan, Oyate in South Dakota, and uh, growing up in Montana and Fort Belknap Indian Reservation, living in a Flathead Indian Reservation, now living in Olympia, Washington, and my daughter's from Quinault Indian Reservation. So when I lived in Denver, we had a, a gardening project called Honor Mother Earth out at the White Buffalo calf, the campgrounds. And in this gardening project, we were gifted uh, some uh, seed, corn seed, from a, a Hidatso or Mandan medicine bundle. And this, uh, this seed was um, about 100 years old. And when we went out there and uh, planted the seed out there at the campgrounds, um, we did ceremony and we had songs sung and we gave honor to where that seed came from. So I think that's important, our traditional connections to the place of food and also the seed and where it comes from. And then my sister, when I was in Pine Ridge one time, uh, Trolling Yellowwood, rest in peace, um, she made some wasna. And uh, I was traveling from uh, Pine Ridge to um, to Seattle, and I stopped by Montana, and I attended a film festival in Missoula, Montana. It's an Indian film festival. And then I still had some ba- little baggies, little sandwich baggies full of wasna that Trillin had made. And I borrowed some popcorn bags, and in between the movies, I would uh, put wasna in my popcorn bag. <laughs> so I jokingly said that, Oh, we don't have any Lakota popcorn. There really is Lakota popcorn because the Lower Brule tribe 
has this popcorn that they sell in these little teepees and these little these little containers uh, they look like little teepees so they have Lakota popcorn for all of you that might want to show a movie and buy Lakota popcorn um, also over here in the northwest where I live um, they have not only commercial fishing but traditional fishing and harvesting and um, a lot of them have that feeling because of the boat decision where the Indians fought for their fishing rights and uh, it is political it is political but it's political um, both uh, having to do with sovereignty and being connected traditionally to the land so one time we were going up the hill uh, well not a hill it's a big mountain Mount Rainier and uh, we brought some muckleshoot kids up there and um, we're going to pick uh, huckleberries and this kid said pull over on the side of the road and we pull over side the road and he said, I need to brush myself off or cleanse myself off. So he went down to the creek and he wiped his face off and splashed himself with water because he was taught that before you go up to that sacred place, that you got to wipe yourself off. And he had respect. And I think he, that that was a knowledge gained by me, being this Dakota, uh, moving always and learning from different people. That was something I didn't even know this kid knew about. Then after we finished picking huckleberries and we could see the mountain over here in their territory and when we looked across it was we could see so far as to see um, the mountain on another reservation Mount Adams over near Yakima we could see far it's really cool that you could see our connectedness with the other Indian tribes and just imagine they're picking huckleberries over there also so also the um this thing about being transitional between the city and the reservation you know um, I just went to go have some coffee over on the Quinault Indian Reservation one time and mentioned just uh, casually about wanting some meat. And my, uh, I told my son-in-law, you should bring me hunting sometime. And and uh, he said, when do you want to go? I said, I don't care. You want to go right now? So my granddaughters were, went into town to have coffee uh, with my auntie. And then I had to call him up and say, I'm going hunting. And then we got a, we got an elk. And then I brought the elk from there back to the back to help help out in the city. So we can, uh, how would you say, uh, cross germinate or pollinate amongst tribes. And as we travel, we um, we learn we learn about our connectedness and we help each other out. I think that um, there's a lot I want to say, and I don't want to speak too long. But I, I've learned from some of these tribes over here in the northwest, Muckleshoots and Nisqually and Puyallup tribes. They have traditional leave not only for their workers in the tribe, but the students as they go to school. So if they're if, uh, if they're um, fishing for the salmon, they get leave from school to go get on the boats with their mothers and fathers and uh, uncles and grandparents to go fish. And I remember helping them pull the fish off the out of the boats and weigh them. Those little kids in there, and what a better way to learn and be part of a the system in the school than to actually be part of the harvest and so there's there's a lot more I'd like to share about this interconnectedness one last story my cousin Tuffy um, the, in some of the plant that's or the food that's in abundance over here Washington State's known for apples and salmon and so when he travels from Seattle area all the way back to the Lake Traverse Sioux Tribe our our Oyate, our Dakota Oyate, he brings salmon 
and apples with him to pass out. So I think of all of us, as we travel into each other's area, we can share our strength. So there really wouldn't be a food desert if we would all share amongst each other and share this. So my also my tribe, Lake Traverse we have a cafeteria in our tribal administration office. I don't know how many other administration offices have cafeteria in them, but I would hope, and I don't, I'm not saying they are, but that would be a great place to start um, role modeling eating from traditional foods, whether it be in a, that administration building in which we have a cafeteria or whether it be in the schools, I, I think that could be done. And I think we had to go along the calendar of the harvest and the moon and the sun, the equinox, etc., instead of going along the tell time according to the seasons, so to speak. And with that said, I'm Robert. I'm done speaking. Thank you, Robert. That's a lot of good information and you provide a lot of value um, we're going to, I love your stories. I want to hear more of your stories, but we need to move on to our next speaker. And really quick, um, this session is being recorded. So if you're on stage, you do consent to being recorded um, here in the club gathering of nations. We're talking about food deserts in our native communities. So Larissa, you have a mic, you have the mic and welcome. Yeah, Pete. Hi, everybody. Thank you for this really interesting room and for sharing all of your stories and your voices on this really important subject. Um, my name is Larissa Nez. I am a first-year master's student at Brown University. I study public humanities, um, and so my research basically explores the intersections of indigenous knowledge systems and the way they're reflected in modern and contemporary art, but also in museum practices, um, indigenous studies, in public health, and in critical theory. Um, and so basically what I study is thinking about methodologies to incorporate indigenous research that utilizes cultural resiliency and cultural heritage as an intervention um, for social inequalities and structural inequities in the U.S. Um, and in specifically in indigenous communities. Um, so I, I really like the theme of this room and I really like the focus on, um, I think, traditional knowledge systems as well as thinking about how indigenous communities specifically are responding to food desert as a crisis. Um, but I also really wanted to bring back um, that food deserts are the result um, of colonialism, but also that they are structured in a way to produce health inequities and to continue to do so, they rely on cap capitalist systems as well as racist frameworks um, and industrialized like food systems that reproduce all of these health inequities as well as harmful systems that continue to have negative health um, effects. But I think that if we think about, um, you know, health deserts as part of this um, larger structure and this larger system that continues to oppress Black and Indigenous people of color um, throughout the world, I think we'll have a better understanding of how to respond to it. Because I think if we place, you know, health inequities um, within, like, if we if we place the responsibility completely on, on the individual, I think it um, not only shames a lot of individuals who may not have the choice to, you know, get as many healthy foods as they want, but it also, you know, reproduces violence in our community and it reproduces fat phobia. Mm -hmm. It reproduces all of these um, taboos and these um, ideas that aren't necessarily grounded within indigenous worldviews or frameworks. And I also wanted to just think about how, like, a lot of these underlying structures um, are really, like... Um, are, are not necessarily, you know, in our faces all the time, but we will witness it in, 
you know, the the continued expansion of food deserts, um, which are, you know, just geographic like spaces where there are no grocery stores within several miles, but also in urban native communities, there's the junk food islands where there's just high concentrations of fast food chains and convenience stores in one space. And I think when we think about food deserts, there's a there's a habit of thinking about food deserts only existing in rural communities. Um, but, you know, food deserts and junk food islands are part of the system um, that, you know, that that are that reproduces health disparities among like black and indigenous and other people of color. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to highlight, I think, like I've, I've been hearing a lot about, you know, like individual decisions, you know, causing our own um, health issues. Uh, but I think, you know, if we if we want to actually um be responsive in a way that is productive and effective. We have to think about the larger systems in place that are reproducing uh, health disparities, but also the geographic locations where food deserts exist and junk food islands exist as well. So I just wanted to thank everybody um, for their time and for their words. Yeah. Thank you, Larissa. Thank you for that, Larissa. Thank you for contributing. Uh, and I just wanted to introduce the next person because she's my mom. So, Rachel, uh, if you're ready to talk, we'd love to hear from you. She lives at Okewinge. That's where I grew up. So um, I'm glad you're here, Mom. My name is Rachel. I'm from the pueblos of Kochibi and Tiwa. And I wanted to thank my son for for um, bringing up a very strong point of, of his memories of his early childhood. And then I, I made a choice and they heard me that we were, although I wasn't continuously voicing it, but I think it was my, my decision. And that decision that, that I made to serve healthy food and, and came from my tribe from both both the Iwa and the Cochiti Pueblos where we where I grew up farming farming. We every family in the Pueblo had um a a farm and we had we relied on that for our basic food sources. So having been uh traditionally brought up that way, it it's ingrained in my life to continue. I currently I I um I'm involved with a group here in the uh, Espanola Valley, the Tewa Women United, and I would like to um, to um, talk about my involvement there. I've been involved with them since the early 1970s, and they grew out of uh, need for support for women. So it's a women's organization, and um, now they're in Espanola. So. Recently, because of the different development of different programs within the Tewa Women United, we have a an environmental program under which our our uh, garden exists. We have a garden. Um, we're called the Healing Garden Oasis, and we're fortunate to have the city of Española welcome our our plan under the leadership of Beata Sosi Peña from um, South um, Santa Clara Pueblo. She, she um, approached them and they agreed to let us have a little plot of land behind the city buildings in the city of Espanola. For several years now, we've had a, 
the healing garden, which which uh, we, where we grow herbs and the native plants that are are used for healing, and then for food sources. So we recently, with the um, uh, sort of a joint alignment with the Guatemalans, the Guatemalan people came up, and we were able to to revive our tradition of of growing um, amaranth. So we now have amaranth in our in our garden as well, and um, we and my now in approaching my eighties, and I'm with a group. Um, you know, called Saya and the Tewa land. Group of grandmothers. So, so our role as the Saya in is to link the issues in garden we we begin our planting and we as the Saya we are begins as the, we open up the session with prayer and we invite them and take care of the gardens and, and then we're in prayer it's open it's on a slope behind the Española uh, municipal building and and um, we we're just extremely proud of that that we have the the joint cooperation and working together of the Sayaing with all the other age groups coming down to our young people. We have a lot of we have a large number of young people who are who come to join us in our work body. So anyway, I wanted to thank you all for for your interesting topic and and yeah thank you mom i think we had a little bit trouble hearing you sometimes the connection back home on the pueblo isn't the greatest so that's another uh, thing that maybe in a future topic we can talk about internet and broadband in any country pete you want to bring up talk introduce brooke again yes brooke um thank you larissa and rachel um, Brooke, you wanted to add a little something. I know Senator Red Dawn. She had to. Um, she's uh, has another uh, room, and she'll be back and forth. But um, yes, Brooke, if you'd like to share. Oh yeah, sorry about that. I forgot to mention that. Like, if anybody um, is interested, First Foods is contracting teachers um, throughout the year. So we're going to be starting programming next month. Uh, the topic for next month is going to be food sovereignty. So if there's anybody interested in teaching a session, it's about an hour and a half. Um, but 30 minutes is like Q&A to, to talk with other Indigenous community members if they have any questions or stuff like that. Um, so just wanted to put that out there. And then also I kind of wanted to backtrack to what uh, Red Dawn, Josh, and the last, pers- the, the last person before your mom, uh, AC, spoke um, regarding um, basically food in terms of uh, biophobia. So 
what biophobia is and how it's been created is is basically a fear or an aversion away from nature, but that also correlates with natural foods. So just backtracking, um, and I just want to put it out there for people to kind of like grasp the topic because I think it's important to look at larger systems and understanding that cultural food palates can be dictated by the state and the government. Um, so kind of focusing on the individual, it could be helpful, but it could also be harmful. So when our traditional lands are taken and stolen, they right after that created privatization of lands, stolen lands. Then from after that, they went to uh, not only privatization of lands, but trespassing laws. And this directly related with um, in the USA specifically with indigenous communities that weren't allowed to leave the reservation. That's how that happened until later on um, were killed. And also with African um, emancipation. So once emancipation happened, what was happening was that indigenous, um, well, African people two. were eating from the land. They were eating like the spruce and the things and gathering and hunting and check, essentially check creating a food sovereignty for themselves. And so in order to stop that, states literally put trespassing laws that said that you can't trespass on, on quote unquote, somebody's privatized land, which forced them back into relying on the system for food for the food uh, distribution and consumption and access and stuff like that. And so Test back one, two, one, two. to like Test one, two, one, two. now what we have as as, Test one, two, one, two, one, two. as a direct response to that is biophobia, Test one, two, one, two, one, two. which is like the diversion Test of one, natural two, one, two, fear one, two. of the natural world. So we have like, especially in like urban centers, we have a lot of kids that will not eat an apple off a tree. It creeps one, them two. out. It's like Check something one, that's, that's just out of the world. Test one, two. Or, um, Test one, two. I've seen, like, um, Test, one Test time one, when two. I was with my, one, two. Test one, two. my partner's side, um, I was trying Test really one, hard to get Test them one, to two. eat vegetables. And there was a phobia behind that. And then so we talked about what the vegetables were, what they come from, how fruits actually start off as flowers. And that fascinated them, just knowing that. And... um. So, yeah, so basically what I wanted to put out there is this idea of biophobia that is directly a cause of stolen land, privatization of land, and trespassing laws. And I just wanted to put that out there, that this is systemic. This is something that is curated, and we have all the tools and all the resources, our people, to overcome this. So I just wanted to put that out there. But thank you for having me up again. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you for sharing. And um, yeah, you brought the the point about the apple. We grew some Brussels sprouts and some of our tribal members never seen or tasted Brussels sprouts. Um, we grew peanuts and they never seen, they don't know where peanuts come from. We, we showed them the plant. We showed them, we dug up the peanuts and uh, broccoli. They're like, wow, I didn't know broccoli grew like that. Some of the kids and even adults, they have no idea where this food come from. And when they tasted it, they were amazed because, as you well know, when you grow your own food, it's organic. It tastes so much better, so much more nutritious for you. But, um, yeah, great point. Can I say something about that real quick, AC? Oh, sorry, Pete. 
Yes, yes, go ahead. We'll be winding down the room, food deserts and native communities in a little bit. We've been going on, let's see, almost one hour and 27 minutes, and this is being recorded, Um, and the stage is open. Maybe we'll grab a couple more people that want to speak. Please raise your hand, and go ahead, Josh. Yeah, well, I, I grew up uh, pretty poor on the reservation, so we grew up eating commodities, you know, and so we had canned, canned vegetables, and particularly canned uh, green beans. And then when I saw fresh green beans, they almost looked like radioactive. They were so green. And I was like, what? why do they look like that? They don't look normal. Because to me, normal was what came in a can from commodities. So that unfamiliarity with different kinds of food, and even to this day, I don't eat a lot of different kinds of food because, you know, what you grow up on, what's, what you're familiar And then like Senator Foster was saying, I can blame it on my mom for what she ate when, when I was in the room. So, catch it, Josh. Um, that wasn't quite where I was going with that, but <laughs> no blame. Um, I just want to thank everybody that's here. I have another panel, so I just wanted to break in. Um, Brooke, what you just said was amazing. Thank you for, for bringing that forth. Um, I've never th- thought of that term, heard of that term. So, it's it's really great that you've brought that to just my kind and and Josh, Larissa, I heard, you know, I was going back and forth, but I just want to thank everybody for coming and being a part of this conversation because it it's one, it's frustrating to see just how the effects of colonialization has impacted our food source and therefore our lives because water is our first medicine and food is our second. And so understanding it in that relationship um, and seeing how far that we've been torn away from that um, is is pretty frustrating. But then it's also so invigorating to see this revitalization of our just putting everyone going towards, you know, this food sovereignty and understanding that it is at the essences we are, who, of who we are, of what we're putting into the, our body and the nutrients and um, not just these community gardens and food co-ops, but also trying to return to a a, a traditional diet and looking at what were our traditional foods were and having it a part of a bigger context as food is political, food is love, food is sovereignty. And so just understanding it in that way, I think is so amazing. And just starting these conversations to be able to address this and working collaboratively. So I look forward to this and just this being the beginning of just working together collectively to address the food sources. And I do know, I do feel that if we can start tackling this, it could be a model for the larger world. Because as I stated, food had moved, has moved from being a nutritional source to a profit source. So I think that we as indigenous people really can in our homelands, these are our homelands, and we have a different connection to the land and the food and, and the water to be able to lead that that charge and it will benefit everybody. So thank you so much, Pete. Thank you so much, AC, and everybody else that contributed to this conversation. And I know that there's so many other people in this, um, every, <laughs> so many other people on this um, in this room that didn't get a chance to to speak that have like just amazing um, experiences and knowledge to, to share. But as I said, I hope this is just, just the beginning. So thank you again, and I will be exiting. So I can't have- Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator Foster. 
Yeah, thank you, Senator Foster, for joining us today. And thank you, Pete, for creating the Gathering of Nations Club and for creating this room. I think we heard that we can change what's happening in our communities and that it has to come from the local people and it should be grounded in, in each of our local traditions. And I think we also heard that there are challenges that even some of us face. You know, we could work with our tribes, but we can also look for other solutions like nonprofits. We can also just look for grassroots people coming together and addressing some of these food, food deserts and food sovereignty issues. So again, thank you, Senator Foster, and thank you, Pete, for allowing me, allowing me to be up here with you guys. All my native people stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up.